Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and joining me now is a former Ohio Democratic Party Chairman David Pepper, who released a book a highly successful book called Laboratories of Autocracy. He's got a new book out calling Saving Democracy. A Cincinnati native, a, a fellow Big Reds fan, and we're going to have a wonderful conversation. So sit around, take a rest, relax, and we'll take a break. And when we come back, we'll be talking to David Pepper. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not released anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Hi, we are back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Kerman. With me is former Ohio Democratic Party Chairman David Pepper, who has a new book out. Well, I, I think it's coming in uh, soon or is out. It's called Saving Democracy. I got an advanced copy of it. I'm plowing through it. David, I love the, the title and I love the concept. Uh, what got you to the point where you had to write a book called Saving Democracy? Well, you know, it's funny. I wrote that other book you mentioned, Laboratories of Autocracy, and, and you you see this from Ohio maybe more clearly than other places, that while everyone loves to focus on D.C. and the DOJ and Jack Smith, the truth is the front line in the attack on democracy is actually in all these states. I mean, that's where – now, this has become more clear since I wrote the book, but I wrote it in 2021, the Laboratories book, because I wanted to say to everyone, pay attention to where they are just running – you know the show and running down democracy in these states but what's interesting was and it, it goes into like really detailed narrative of just how screwed up these places are like how corrupt how extreme how it's honestly half these state legislators are just a bunch of goofballs that have never won a real election but people would say to me i mean i love that book but it was so painful i kept feeling like i just skipped to the end to know what to do <clears throat> but, I heard that enough. I was like, you know what? I'm going to write, I'm going to write a new book that for all the people who already understand how bad it is, it's only about what they can do. And that's what I literally called it the user's manual, saving democracy. So it's basically saying, okay, once you realize that the front line of the attack on democracy are these states, the truth is it opens up so much that you can do about it that you never would do if you think it's only about Washington, D.C. So this book is all about like, I don't care where you are, blue state, red state, swing state. There is so much you can be doing right now to fight back. And you probably aren't doing because no one's ever laid all these things out. And so I try and make it this very practical guide about what you could do wherever you live to fight for democracy. 
Um, what's uh, give me like the top three things? What do you think? They, well, first of all, what I find in covering and having covered covered politics for forty years is most people are too a they they don't really understand how they can be involved. Right. Secondly, they don't understand that they are involved, whether they they're right. doing anything or not. And third, they're far too busy leading their normal lives and being run asunder by the very uh, forces that they rail against. Um, you know, you're trying to get your kid to soccer practice. You're worried about paying your rent. You're worried about uh, your health insurance. And uh, you're worried about a, a road, a pot ro- a pothole in your road. You're right. worried about the, the red light, Kim. But you don't even understand that all of this stuff is directly related to what you should be doing to make Absolutely. your life easier. No, I, I completely agree. And actually, one of the things in the book that I really emphasize is stop thinking about politics or let's say democracy because some people politics is going to get them feeling too partisan democracy itself don't think about it as some extra thing you need to do you know because you're if you're too busy you may never do it for that reason one of the things i really encourage in the book is think about what all the things you already do like are you involved in a nonprofit? are you on the board do you give to it you're you're wherever you work and then think about in the things you already do, how could you incorporate lifting democracy? And my best examples are every nonprofit in, okay, the front line of the attacking democracy, maybe the leading edge of it is destroy the voters that might vote against them, Dis, uh, purge them, suppress them, add new rules, okay? That's so much of what the thinking is on the side of the, of the other side. That's what they're doing in states. Every nonprofit in this country can re-engage those voters right now you know if you're a food bank if you're a homeless shelter if you're a rec center if you're a health clinic in cincinnati everyone who comes through that door is someone who is probably being targeted by those purges maybe no longer is even on the rolls and as you check them into your health clinic the last question you can ask them is are you registered to vote or did you move well let's update your voter registration that is completely legitimate nonpartisan activity. So what I'm saying to people who are reading the book is, are you involved in that health clinic? Are you involved? Do you give to it? Do you volunteer? Because you could ask them to begin doing that. So a lot of the ways that we'll lift democracy is not by adding new tasks, although that's great too. It's actually looking into what we already are doing every day. How do those things interact with everyday people? And how can we make simple changes to actually use all these parts of our footprint to lift democracy. So another example, like every mayor in this country, and they're almost all Democrats, every mayor can and should be putting their entire city hall footprint to work to be re-engaging the voters that these state houses are purging. Every mayor right now, they don't have to do something new. They just need to say to every single director, be it the parks director, the health director, Hey, what are we going to do to actually make sure our city voters are re-engaged? Just like we want a full census count, we want them re-engaged. So a lot of the book is about saying, don't think of this as a new project in your busy life. Think about it as think about it as adding an element of lifting democracy to all the things you already do. And I think once people, and I literally give out worksheets in this book, you'll see at the end of every chapter, once you see it that way, you, the sky's the limit in terms of what people can actually do. And it's real, this, this type of work is so important. Why? Because one, the again, in Ohio, the minute Obama won Ohio, the assignment from the Republicans was destroy the Obama coalition. 
keep young voters from voting, keep black voters from voting. So mm -hmm. this is a huge part of their agenda. So re-engaging all these uh, suppressed voters is a really important part of the overall uh, sort of pro-democracy project. The other thing, the other reason this is so important, I don't go on for, on for a little bit, but it, it, this is an important point. No, go ahead. The typical political operation on the Democratic side is specifically targeting regular repeat voters. <laughs> you got that one right. <laughs> right. And the problem with that is when you think about it for one second, is that means you are accepting the purged universe as the the universe of, of voters. Uh, that, see, now that's like, my... Uh, I'm yeah, sorry. It's this crazy is my... when you actually think about it. You'll see in the book, I literally get so fed up. I have a diagram about it. Like once... And, and so a campaign with two months to go, and if you knock on doors, you see this, you're skipping the apartment buildings. Yes. You're skipping over the poor areas because they've been purged. They don't vote frequently. The reason why I think it's so important to do it through the kind of nonprofit or community-based organization I'm talking about is those organizations aren't taking out the voters we need to get to before they do the work. In fact, the best nonprofits are serving those very people. And so they don't, they're not going to remove them from the engagement. That's the direct target of the engagement of those health clinics or that rec center in, let's say, a tougher part or a poorer part of Cincinnati. So using these nonprofit and community-based organizations to engage voters is not only really important because it's a big scale, but they are targeting the very people that are purged and that your standard political operation literally takes out of the universe of people they're engaging. We have to start accepting the dwindled electorate that purging is causing, and we have to go back and re-engage all the voters that are left out, which is why we have voter turnout numbers at 40%. And, you know, I put in the book. Yeah, we consider that good. <laughs> right. Or J.D. Vance is literally a senator having won, like, 24% of the states vote when you when you take into account all the people didn't vote. Like so much of winning going forward is going to be re-engaging all those people. But the standard political operation rarely is talking to those voters. Well, that's let's talk about that. Let's dig into that a little bit. One of my biggest criticisms of look, it was Tip O'Neill who said that all politics is local. And it was, it was, an, well, my grandfather used to say the politics is what goes on in your backyard. But the what I find is that the Democrats will not and cannot frame the argument. They allow the Republicans to do it, speaking to what you're saying about accepting that they've the purged view. They will simply not reframe the argument when they have they accept what the Dem what the republicans give them and react to that rather yeah. than reframing the argument and going after yeah i mean we those voters and the things that matter to most people yeah we do that in messaging and i have a whole chapter on messaging about this but like you said we do it when it comes to the electorate itself we are yes we are literally ex so they why is that i hate to say it it's we don't have a long game. We don't have a deep infrastructure. And so when you have a campaign budget and your data, people tell you, well, it's going to cost X, Y and Z to get that person who hasn't voted in two cycles to vote versus talking to that voter. We know shows up every time with three weeks to go and trying to be efficient. <clears throat> they, go to, they go after the most frequent voter. And and my, if you go through the whole book, so my the point of my book is. We, if all we're doing is engaging voters in the last three months of election, we're already losing. 
Yes. Uh, it's too late. But it's not only too late. It means you are going to shave out a lot of the electorate because you don't have time to get them in, to them if you start that late. Now, I'm not someone who's going to be naive to think that every campaign for every office is a, is, is a never-ending thing. What I'm right. saying is let's find institutions that are in communities already. And although some of them can't be partisan, those institutions have every right, and I would say responsibility, to engage voters that have been suppressed. So long before the campaign shows up, that health clinic has asked a person who walked in the doors, are you registered? Here's how you can get registered. Let me sign you up because it's an online system of registration. And that way you're getting to all these people. And again, this is not, for the most part, in many of these places, it's not partisan at all. The Republicans will say that. What you'll get if you do that, Republicans will say, well, you're just trying to register them because they're Democratic voters. And as long as these organizations are are smart about it, like there is nothing wrong with a nonprofit literally saying, uh, you know, I I would argue it's part of a if you're if you are serving the health needs of a poor community. As part of that service, I think lifting those folks that you're serving into democracy is part of that whole health. I agree. And and here's here's the thing I know. If the Republicans start trying to stop what I'm talking about, then we know we're on the right track. (laughs) That's what they do. I'd rather do it everywhere. Follow the law, which is that, of course, you can do it. And have them try and stop you from having essential freedom of association uh, than, than what we have now, which is, I mean, once you see sort of the vision, at least that I see, I walk around every day like, oh, my God, look at that lost opportunity to engage voters. Look over here. That person could be doing so much and they aren't. You know, right now, here's an example. And this is why they really couldn't tell you uh, not to do it. What's the biggest example of an organization that does what I'm talking about right now? The Bureau of Motor Vehicles. Yes, because the motor the and yeah. why is it effective? Because you're going in there to get a license and you get asked. There is no reason why every single institution, nonprofit, you name it, isn't doing the same thing as the BMV. And the problem with the BMV is, although it's great doing it, even that's cutting out people on the lower end who or younger sure, end who, who don't, don't get, get cars yeah. for different reasons. So it, it's sort of a very bureaucratic way to put it, but. Think about all the BMV potential institutions in your community. Yeah. And if you know that local library, if you know that local nonprofit, if you're on the board, go ask them, hey, are you registering voters, the ones who come through here? And if they say no, say, well, well, why not? Why not? You should be. There's no reason not to. And do you know that all the people you are serving are the very people being purged by that Republican state house? The very people they're trying to keep out. So you have an ob. Every mayor in this country and this is at least how I think about it, should be livid that their voters are being targeted by these state houses. They should feel a competitive fire to say, I get, I got my people's back. I'm going to use my city hall to lift, just like they do. I mentioned the example. Every 10 years, every mayor in this country has a whole effort to make sure they have a full census count, don't they? Yeah. It's a whole effort because they got to get a high count to get this and that. We should be doing that every year with democracy. I mean, you want to have your full civic representation on the voting rolls. The Republic. Imagine if there was a group out there trying to minimize your census count. Yeah, every mayor, what are you even doing? You're trying to reduce the number of people counted in my city. That's outrageous. I wouldn't stand for that. Well, that's what's happening to the voters. And well, every mayor should feel and city council member 
I think should be working their tails off. And it's great politics too, by the way, to make sure that all their, all their residents are getting the information needed or signing up to, to vote. Let me follow up on something that you said. We don't have a long game. Why not? What's wrong? Why doesn't, why, why don't you have a long game? The Republicans have a long game. The Federalist Society ended up placing six conservative members in the Supreme Court. That was a long game. Yeah. They have a very long game about suppressing voters. They have a very long game that brought us to where we are today. Why doesn't Demo- why don't Democrats have a long game? What's wrong? You know, it, I I think we our our game has has for, you know I, I try not to run around and rip everybody when I do these books. A lot of friends. I, I understand. But... Anyway, so so I'm trying to. I agree. It's a big question. How do we analyze it? The first, I do think the Democrats understandably believe so much in the power of federal government because. The biggest wins in our country's history for justice and civil rights have come through federal legislation. Yes. So our default is federal. And that makes sense. Um, it um, And because of that, you very quickly, and by the way, we also, I'm afraid, and this is the part that's, um, uh, you know, not correct. The assumption by Democrats still, although it's changing, but for too long, has been democracy's intact. It's not really going to go under. It's been very, you know, it's kind of like we're America, we're, you know, we're just a democracy. So I think this sort of association with federal power being the most important and this very sort of naive attitude that democracy is just there to stay since the Voting Rights Act makes us feel pretty good about, hey, if all we do is win federal elections, we win. And that, of course, very quickly leads to a swing state strategy. Yeah, it also leads and, to and so a all you do is swing state for you. Yeah, a swing state strategy is blitz a few states and a few districts mm-hmm. and you win. And and in the end, in hindsight, especially when the other side knows that going for broke for in states is how you win democracy, you you really aren't going to build. Uh, that's almost winning on the cheap if it's just come in, blast away in a few swing states, build up good infrastructure in those states, and you can win without winning thirty states. I think that naturally is going to lead to you're not building a long game because you think you can win it kind of on the cheap. And here's the problem now. When the others, and I go through this in great detail in the book, when the other side is going for broke in dozens of states and you're not even in those states, you get to the point where it's so perilous that now you're in a stage of panic, which is, oh my God, if we don't win, and think about this, we feel this every two years for a decade. If we don't win the next election, we're done. Democracy's over. So we don't have time to build that infrastructure long game because we got to win right now. So now we're in a repeat sort of doom cycle. And so we think maybe we'll get to that later. But right now, if we don't win these three states, we're done. Literally, democracy is dead. And we just keep doing that over and over again. So I think the, the, the lesson is, yes, of course, we need to beat Donald Trump next November. We have to reelect Chair Brown. But let's be disciplined enough to know that we can't continue to only focus on these swing states and federal years. We have to be fighting back and running everywhere, which means building an infrastructure that values everywhere. So let's say 70% of every dollar goes to the federal. Take 30% and use it to build up in all these other states, something that we haven't built, but that the Koch brothers have been building for a generation. So I think it's been like a multi-step uh, process 
of getting into this predicament where, where we don't have much of a ground game in so many parts of America where we desperately need one. There's a, a pushback here. Let me, there's two follow-ups. First, the Republican uh, criticism that the problem with the Democratic Party is they're smug elitist, that they think that they have uh, they have everything in their back pocket and will take it from them because they're not they're they don't really appeal to uh, blue collar voters who, well, when they vote Republican are voting against their own self-interest. But to so I'll ask about that. And then the second follow up right. is uh, about uh, also from Tip O'Neill when he went out and was uh, working. Uh, for the Democratic Party, he said, you know, this is mid-level of his career, and they sent him out to try and find people to run in sometimes very highly Republican areas. He said the first thing he did was he'd walk into a, a district and go, who's the most popular guy here? Who's who? Who's the car salesman? Who's the who's the school teacher? Who's the, the local, you know, fo football? Who Who does everybody know? And he'd go to him and go, are you a Democrat? Well, you should be. And how can I how can I get you registered as a Democrat and get you to run? You should run. Um, I don't totally. see any totally. of that. I see totally. none of I that. I could not today. agree with that more. There's I put no that in my book. Like we have a crisis of uncontested districts everywhere. 50 percent yes. of the Tennessee Republicans who voted out those two Justins did not have an opponent last November. And so what I say to people in the book and you'll see this. OK. Are you in a district that no one has run for years, which only makes your extremism wor worse? Well, think about running. And like Tip O'Neill, if you can't do it yourself, go find your most impressive friend, the high school history teacher who taught everyone for a generation, the football coach, and see if they'll run and then help them. So I, I really, I, I go a lot. We, we have to recruit everywhere. We have to run everywhere. And it's really, this is a really important point for me. And some will dismiss this as, well, that's just a waste of money. No, running even in a bad district is so much better than no one running at all. Because these legislators- you Get the word out. Yeah, get the word out. The reason they are in a downward spiral extremism is they feel no accountability anywhere towards the middle. The only incentive they have is to be more extreme. And we make that so much worse when they literally look at the ballot in November and there's no opponent. And so- Running everywhere is a, is one of the most important take homes of the book, which is is it begins to bring accountability and a alternative message from simple right wing craziness into all these areas. And even if it doesn't win, the value of doing it is so much greater than the value of nothing. But we we literally treat people who aren't running in swing areas like they're a waste of time. It's a waste of effort. What they're doing is invaluable when we should be saying to anyone who calls wait, you're running in that really tough district? Thank you. You're a freaking hero, and I'm going to help you do it. Right. Last and we got to do that not just in words, but we need an infrastructure that says that and that values yes. that. And I go through in the book how you can build that. Okay, last question before we go to break. Isn't everything we've just talked about a function of the chairman of the DNC? And doesn't this indicate that you all have problems in the DNC? Yeah, I, I actually, I'm I'm a good friend with Jamie Harrison. And he was the chair of the South Carolina Democratic Party when I was chair of Ohio. He actually would get and agree, I think, with all that we're talking about. I think we're talking about a broader ecosystem problem. It's not, you know, it, when you're the chairman of the DNC and the presidents of your party, you, you're you're not really the head of everything that's making this. No, decision. that's of course not. I think we need. I guess I was I talking about it, the previous DNC. Oh, right. Chair. Actually, you know, Perez and Jamie Harrison both 
put more money into state parties that were not blue and swing states than prior chairs. Yeah, so that's true. They've actually taken it in a better direction because but... neither one of them were really creatures of D.C. when they got there. Uh, when I first became chair, by the way, of Ohio in 2015, not to be negative, but I could not have told you what the DNC did for my Ohio party. But yeah. after a few years of Perez and Harrison, I could tell you, oh, no, they provided grants to help us do this and that. So they're actually doing better. But it's still the scale has to be bigger. I think this is going to take like grassroots, major donors, Joe Biden and, and future major figures all saying to the DNC chair and everybody else, we all have to do this. We yes. can't only have the DCCC and DSCC be where all the money goes. We can't have the only stars being a few senators that everyone wants to get, be at a cocktail party with. It's it's and that's why like I actually I like Jamie I respect him. Not I, I he's quoted in my first book throughout. It's a broader ecosystem problem and it's been building for years. By the way, the one going back to your other question for a second. Why why don't we build it? And this gets back to a little bit about you 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 hinted at this. I worry that a lot of the Democrats are now convinced that these red states that we've allowed to become what they become because we don't compete there are as crazy as their legislators. So they think, well, yeah. why bother? We can't win there anyway. So anything we do there is a waste. A, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. B, it's wrong. The Kansas referendum in August is the sort of bat signal to the country. These state houses are far more extreme than the states. And you only reveal that if you run in them. Yes. And that Kansas referendum should have told everybody, wow. And the, by the way, Kansas also is Democratic governor, which is also sort of a hint. Yeah, He's well, same in Kentucky. You're right, Kentucky. The guy's one of the most popular governors in America. He's yeah. the most popular Democratic governor in America in Kentucky. That's the hint that just because a state for federal purposes is designated red, don't just write it off as an unwinnable, you know, create the, the the reason these Jerry, these legislatures gerrymander themselves is they know they're more extreme than their people and they gerrymander to protect themselves. Yeah, so no they shit. They know choose it. their voters instead of the right. voters. So let, yeah. let the rest. So they can pass abortion bans with no exceptions and get reelected, even though it's only supported by 10 percent of their people. So if they know it and we see the Kansas referendum in Bashir in Kentucky, then it's time for Democrats to see, you know what, maybe we can do better in these places because there are all sorts of evidence that we should be able to, especially when the other side is in a downward spiral of extremism. Um, and, and this, you know, Roe v. Wade is over 50 percent in almost every state in the country. Yes, uh, it is. It's right. 70%. Minimum wage going up would win anywhere. Yes. So there are reasons to think. And by the way, the result, the reason we have a Democratic governor in Kentucky, in, in Kansas, the results of these broken and corrupted state houses are declining public schools, declining health in rural America, broken towns, dead streets. So there's also a lot of material to run on in these places. So, But I do think one of the other reasons there's no sort of long game infrastructure is some are just without knowing the rest of the country as well as, as we do having our Ohio and Kentucky roots. These places are not as lost in terms of politics, in terms of being able to win them back as, as people sort of assume. Yes. But they will be if you don't even fight there. That's a good place to stop to take a break. When we come back, we'll have more with uh, former Ohio Democratic Party Chairman David Pepper, who has one successful book out, Laboratories of, of Autocracy, and his current book, Saving Democracy. Stick around. 
fascinating conversation. We'll be right back. Hey, you. Yeah, you. We're talking to you, and we need your help. Seriously. As you probably know, independent journalism is a vital pillar of our democracy. Like everything else, it's not free. We're asking all longtime listeners of the show to help support us by becoming a member on Patreon. For the price of a latte, you can help guard democracy. Join us today at patreon.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast to help us keep bringing you the podcast you love and the facts you deserve. Hi, we are back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and with me today is former Ohio Democratic Party chairman. You know, I, I keep stumbling over my words this morning, David. David Pepper, who has written a, a great new book called Saving Democracy. And, and David, I guess I want to talk a little bit about your roots and where you got where you are. I mean, uh, you're a Cincinnati boy, and, um, and we were talking beforehand. We're both, a, you know, I, I grew up a big Reds fan and, and you know, a, a, a I was at the last game in Crosley Field, the first game in Riverfront, was there for the Big Red Machine. But I also do know Cincinnati, and it's not known for being a, a bastion of liberal Democrats. How did you how did you grow up in that area and come to to be where you are politically? So that's a that's an interesting question. I didn't grow up very political at all. And my, you know, a lot of people in Cincinnati are associated with Procter and Gamble. And yeah. my dad was my dad was a Procter and Gamble. So I grew up in sort of a business-minded, non-political. My mom, my mom's family had been in Cincinnati for five generations. But as I was saying when we started, I was, I, I love Cincinnati. And, and uh, Cincinnatians are kind of ridiculous how passionate we are about our city. Um, I was named in law school and I went to school out east, most likely to be president of the Cincinnati Board of Tourism, <laughs> which was their way of saying, stop talking so much about your city. And of course, that was in the heyday of like, building off the bangles and you know i've gone on about graders ice cream and skyline chili and all that stuff beautiful so beer I moved, <laughs> I, so i moved back to cincinnati after law school i hadn't been there in 10 years and you may remember that cincinnati in in the late 90s had a terrible spate of fatal police shootings and ultimately yes. riots on our streets and uh, sort of here's the grown-up me late 20s thinking the city I've been bragging about is doing terribly. Like we literally were on an international spotlight for riots and police community relations. And that's when I ran for office, but it wasn't really like, I wasn't very partisan. Um, I, I was pretty politically naive. And I was like, well, I'm going to go help my city that I care so much about. And that's why I ran. And frankly, that's why I think in hindsight, we want people to run. And so I ran and I, I clearly was the outsider. I had no trappings of an insider. I didn't know anything about it. And I finished first out of 29 or 30 people, which had never been done before. And I think it's because I felt so much like a different type of candidate. And I've been involved ever since. Uh, I, I ended up um, being a county commissioner. And when I, I won, as you said, it was pretty Republican back then. The city wasn't, yeah. the, 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 the county was. I was the first, when I won and the, the state. Yeah, in the state. I was the first county, when I won, we won the majority of the county commission for the first time in 30 years when I won in 2006. And then I ran for auditor and attorney general uh, in 2010 and 14, which were brutal years to be on the ballot. What's funny is when I was recruited, people thought I had done a good job running for county commission. So I got a call from Ted Strickland. Do you want to run for auditor? 
and that was when Obama had just won and Strickland was governor. And I thought, oh, my God, this is the opportunity of a lifetime <laughs> running statewide in 2010. Like I've won the lottery. Little and did you know <laughs> that was right before the health care debate started grinding away. And then this guy, Scott Brown, won in Massachusetts, like, oh, this maybe this isn't such a good time. And, you know, by the way, Ted Strickland in 10, in hindsight, you realize this, he only lost by two. It was actually pretty close. I lost by five. But that was the beginning of like, and, and again, state auditor in Ohio is one of the positions that draws the lines. I was running to help avoid gerrymandering. So I so the, the naive kid who ran for city council in 2010, it was the beginning of my education about the much more rough and tumble of state level politics. I'm running to end gerrymandering. I don't quite win. I lose by five. If Ted Strickland and I had won that year, we would have avoided the gerrymandering. And ever since, it's just been a nightmare because it was that 2000, and I go through this in the first book, Laboratories. It was the 2010 wins all over that Karl Rove masterminded that allowed Republicans to get into Michigan and Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, formerly Democratic states, and gerrymander the hell out of them. And we have been on a down, and that 2011 gerrymander that came out of those 10 elections was really the moment where this whole sort of Alec Koch brothers gerrymandered state house model went from theory to practice. And that's where so much of the downward spiral be begun. And that's why this first book is in some ways me explaining, having lived through it, what it looked like on the front end, how close we were to avoiding it. And then since they got there, the corruption that's resulted, the extremism has all been through those states that Karl Rove won in 2010. They had other states too, but what one of my theories is gerrymandering isn't only bad because sometimes like Wisconsin or Michigan, they're in charge when they shouldn't be. Even if it's a red state, a gerrymandered legislature is far, far worse yes. than a non-gerrymandered red legislature because the gerrymandered legislature is going to be extremist. Extremist. No incentive yes. to yes. do anything. And so in Ohio, we're probably going to normally have a Republican legislature. In 08, we didn't after Obama. But we're not going to have an insane one that's doing what they're doing now. We'll have one that knows that 60% of Ohioans are pro-choice or knows that like we have a diverse state that values our diversity and doesn't want to you know, run from it. Um, but you get these gerrymandered legislatures, even in Republican areas, they are so much worse than they otherwise would be if they had fair districts. So my, my book is basically in some weird ways, it's like a guy who thought of politics naively, thought of politics naively, getting a pretty clear education about how awful these state houses are. And one of the first things I heard from a lot of readers was, my God, that's terrible. What you're writing it's so disturbing. I'm like, I know that I felt the same way when I figured it out. Yeah, like, like you the use the analogy of a soccer game. I like the analogy yeah. of a soccer game. Um, yeah. Explain that for your readers. Yeah. So, you know, I, I try and break things down. I do all these whiteboards in the same way. I try and break things down so that they're very simple. Yeah. You sound like my high school football coach, but that's, that's yeah, exactly. It, it, but it works. It, it seems to work. So, my kids, I have a nine year old and a six year old. And I use this analogy because if they can understand it, then the rest of us better figure it out. Well, according, to, son, according to the latest records, uh, what is it? Donald Trump has a, a reading level and appeals to people of third and fourth grade reading. Yeah, so that's, that's, yeah, I guess that's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> yeah, so my son, Jack, who's very fast, I go through this book, he's very fast. 
I don't know where that comes from. I wasn't fast. But he, he was pretty confused when he first got on a soccer field. We didn't really do much of a coaching of him. He just, But he always knew, and he would play defense, hey, when the ball comes over the center line, go run and kick it the other way. He knew that. And, and he would know now, just like mother son, that the reason you do that is because if one team's always on offense, they're going to win. They're, yeah. they're going to win. The game. They're taking shot after shot after shot. And that is what's happening in American politics. They, the other side, knows that democracy of this country is written in the state houses of this country. That's who writes the rules of who votes and how they vote yeah. and when they vote and when are they purged and how you register. And that is the place that determines are districts fair or not. Do you have a fair system or do you have a rigged system? The other side is in that space and has been for years, every single day. And the point of my book is they are on offense in the place that determines our democracy far more than Washington. Every once in a while you have a Voting Rights Act, but it's quite rare, right? Yeah. Every year they pass election laws in states. It happens all the time. And they're just squeezing the electorate and gerrymandering the districts. And the problem is we're running around winning federal elections in swing states, and that about that's about it. They're always on offense. Not only are we not on offense, we often aren't even on defense. No. We've we got a goalie who better protect our ass. Right. Like, and so what happens after like Dobbs? I'll just give an example. Going back to the soccer team. After Dobbs, what happened? What did everyone say in Washington? Oh, my God. You know, the abortion got, got, got basically struck down through Mississippi. We better elect some more U.S. senators. And my attitude is, of course, we won't do that. The right question is ultimately, who the hell passed that law in Mississippi and how right. do we run against them? Yes. Because until they feel accountable. Preach it, brother. You're right there. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. And here's the other problem. The author of the Mississippi ban, the author of the Texas ban that led to that crazy law, the author of the Ohio ban that sent that 10-year-old rape victim to, to Indiana, the three of them didn't even face opponents in their next election after those laws. So when I say we're not on defense, they are writing the laws that overturn our entire nation's politics, and they Without don't any face opposition in the next district in the next year. They they are writing those laws without any opposition, and they are they are the minority party leading a tyranny of the minority, gerrymandering exactly. the districts to make sure that they choose the voters to keep them in office. That's the problem. Exactly, and and when you don't run against them after they do that. What do you think they're going to do? Boy, they're going to bend you over a table and yeah. screw you hard. They will keep going and going. <laughs> yeah. And they have no accountability for me. And that's why I say, I don't know if you're going to beat that Mississippi person, but here's what I want to happen to that person. I want our side to run and do a lot of door knocking and have enough money they can run digital ads and mail. And maybe they win because abortion bans with no exceptions are deeply unpopular everywhere everywhere no one wants rapists picking the mothers of their kids which is essentially what that is yeah um, so what do we want we want that mississippi legislator or the one in texas or the one in ohio to literally start hearing from their neighbors in september i thought you were a nice little neighbor down the street i didn't know you were the extremist who passed that abortion ban you never <laughs> said that when we waved you at the parade I just can't believe you're doing that. You need to start, as you said, shining a light on it, making them feel some heat from the other side, since they're the one taking toxic views. And maybe they'll lose, like happened to Kansas. 
at the very least, they'll start to hear from the other side, hey, you're a freaking nut. I didn't know that. I'm really a, a, appalled by what you're doing in that state house. I had no idea you're doing that. And right now, when you don't run against these people, no one has any idea what these people are doing. They couldn't even name them. Newspapers don't write articles unless normally it's in the middle of a campaign. We don't even have newspapers anymore. But right, even if you have newspapers. So yeah. you need to be running but everywhere to, to, to call all this stuff out. You point out something and you've you've. And that's going on offense. Yeah, you've you've pointed out a few things that I I think we need to circle back around to. And one is okay. And and what you're what you're talking about here, as far as the people reacting to you know the reactionaries, you you said people are not as crazy as the legislatures. They're not as extreme as we think. Now you and I both know that from growing up in essentially kind of the same environment. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. I, I find that in Kentucky that people often give us crap. I remember growing up going, people would go, well, you're from Kentucky, but how do you wear, you wear shoes? I mean, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> I remember in Cincinnati when I was young and, and Northern Kentucky and Southern Ohio, there was still the, the rotary uh, two party, you know, the party phone system. That's how right. rural it was. So, but nonetheless, that being said, and you can make fun of us all you want, but I do know that you can reach people if you make them understand um, that the, the, how things affect them. They're not right. as crazy as the people they elect. How do you tell people? How do you put? How do you voice that and let people know outside of those districts? Because one of the big problems I find nationally is that people dismiss, like you're saying, the, the Democratic Party won't even field candidates in some of these places how do you make people outside of those districts understand the relevance and the and the fact that people aren't as crazy as as we think they are i mean i think there are just enough good examples of of especially around these referenda you know another good example it's happening in both conservative and more progressive areas the crazy right-wing school board candidates are losing in many areas because the people in these towns, including conservative towns, don't want extremists running their schools. So there's enough examples. Yes, they like them. reading To Kill a Mockingbird. You know, right? Exactly. And, and they don't want that angry parent who who's already annoying them at their kids' softball games or whatever to also start being able to dictate what's in the school's libraries. So right. I think there are just a lot of examples that 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 don't assume. And, and any national polling on Roe v. Wade tells you that. Um, also, so there are enough examples. I think the problem is, I think the ones really paying attention would say, okay, I hear you. I think the problem is they, there's an assumption. This goes back to your first question. Why is it not built up? There's a zero sum game mentality about money. Yes. Well, you may be right. Maybe we could win there, but we can't take away from that other effort in Pennsylvania or something. And and I get that. That's a closer also, race because it's a one or two point. We got a yeah. much better chance of winning there. And here's so the way our I money pose, there. Yeah. Here's my response. One, I don't think it's a zero sum. I actually think the democracy grassroots activists in this country, when you say to them, this is a race that democracy is on the line, they don't just zero sum and take from other places. They're giving more. We won every sector of state race in a swing state against an election denier last November because we said to America, these are really important. And that money didn't take away from John Fetterman. It meant that we won and protected democracy in Arizona, New Mexico, you name it. Just like getting fired up 
to make sure we won that Wisconsin Supreme Court race? That wasn't zero sum. That didn't take away from federal races now. That was a massive victory. So I think we have to say to people, okay, one, we can win in these places, but two, stop thinking that every money that goes to that Wisconsin Supreme Court candidate you probably never heard of is money that somehow should have gone to a U.S. Senate candidate somewhere. Some grassroots supporters will be giving to her that never would have given in that Senate race, right. or they may give to both. So I think there's a th that zero sum mentality is part of the reason. So here's another way I'd put it. You know, and I don't say this is a criticism. Go back to your home state. Amy McGrath raised a hundred million dollars. Yes, Mitch McConnell. And people say, well, that's what a waste of money and all that. Not good. You know, she's a candidate. You're trying to raise money. I can't fault her for that. But and why do people give money? Because they are thinking, well, beating Mitch McConnell must be an important part of saving democracy. So we're going to give this woman a ton of money. And so my attitude is, let's just let's go zero sum for a second. Let's assume that's all the hundred million we have. Let's have a conversation, a grown up conversation with grassroots supporters to say, listen, let's give 70 million dollars to Amy McGrath. That's a lot of money. That extra 30 is just very low value add on TV. Let's take the other 30 million and put it into state level state house races that are currently uncontested in dozens of states. And you'd be funding tons of candidates. So it's not zero sum, but even if it was, we have to start having a conversation that don't don't give all to a few of these celebrity style campaigns and zero out all these other places that democracy is cratering in. And my hope is over time, and that's what my book tries to walk through, there are mechanisms to do that that actually already are in place. They just need to be scaled up. Well, I think you, you, you make an interesting point, but I'll, I'll push back on this. I find that it's not the quantity, but it's also the quality of the money spent. And I will Correct. point to you you pointed out Mitch McConnell and I'll and Amy McGrath and let me let me just follow me down my rabbit hole for a second. Mitch McConnell won in 1984. He was the only Republican to come in on uh, Reagan's coattails, and he won with one ad. He was 30 points behind D. Huddleston. He had one ad where uh, there were pretended to be coon hunters running around going, "Where's D? Where's our senator? Where's our senator?" And these woo woo woo, and these dogs were, and then they ran up the steps. D. Huddleston is here. D. Huddleston is there, but D. Huddleston in, in Senate where he should be. Well, he was there 94 percent of the time. He had a great voting record, but that one ad, it was funny. It was pointed. Right. And uh, and guess who gave us that one? Roger Ailes. And he said that Mitch McConnell was the most malleable candidate he'd ever met. And by God, they won the election. So it was the, there wasn't a whole lot of money tossed his way. Right. But the money that was tossed was tossed to a guy who knew how to manipulate and got in. Right. Now, in Amy McGrath's case, I, there's something that you said earlier that I just would love to see in a Democratic ad. Do you want rapists to pick the fathers of their kids? That's the ad. Well, that's that's it. Put that's that in out my book, there. Yeah. That, that, why the hell don't you put? Why yeah. why isn't there someone doing that? And well, I go to these ads, and I and I tell you, the people who are putting together the Democratic ads suck. <laughs> There's no other way to say it. They they are the most banal, bland, ignorant things I've ever seen. And I, they in the book, I have the a whole chapter on messaging. Yeah, and I use that as an example. Actually, do you know a guy named Drew Wesson? Yes. Drew, that's Drew's line, and I give him credit in the book. I was on a call with him once, and he said it. He said it's a beautiful that line. line. I immediately tweeted it, giving him credit. I didn't even do it. went viral in a second. And what we need on our side is 
lines that go viral because they're so powerful with an emotional punch and they make it so clear. And, and I do, I go through in the book, this problem, I mean, the Republicans do what they do to gin up their turnout as high as they can by really firing up through very evocative yes. language. And we don't, we milk toast it all thinking, okay, we need to have it as broad as possible. But at some point, if your messaging doesn't even fire up your own folks, you're going to lose because of turnout before you even get to the swing voters. And I have, whole, I have a whole chapter on that problem that, that we're so busy trying to find that extra one or 2% of the swing voter that we don't do what Republicans are pretty smart at doing, which is coming up with insane messages that we all know are BS that will make but this sure one actually isn't. Yeah. <laughs> it, but see, I always and our line happens to be true. Yeah. Literally, that's, what that's what the, Drew the, said is if you're in a debate, and I I sent this to a few friends running and they didn't do it. I said, if you're in a debate right now, and this was last November, October, you stand up and say, Well, the difference between me and so and so is I believe every woman should have a right to choose her the father of her kids. And I don't think the rapist should choose the mother of hers. And he thinks the opposite. And it's absolutely true. Fucking beautiful. See, that's, but that's why I push back. It it, it is quantity. But at the end of the day, I agree. I've always said we have two parties in this country, two political, two major political parties. One has no heart and one has no head. And that's, I, I, the biggest criticism I have of the Democratic Party is they're not very strategic in their thinking. And it bothers me. They, there is no, you talk about, you know, the long game, you all don't have one. That's yeah. like, and it's been, and look, I, I grew up as, you know, much as you did, uh, except I, you know, my grandparents were civil, you know, were involved in civil rights. My, my uncle was a, back when they had Democrats in Kentucky in the state house, he was, a, he was a Senate majority leader. Oh, and so there's, you know, that's, it's it. I, I've watched this go down the pike, and it's almost as if the Democrats are afraid of themselves of what they stand for, and that turns off a lot of voters. That's why. I, that's why I, at first I didn't think I'd do it, but I added a whole chapter on this messaging stuff because I, I, think I do think that I do think it's an important part of kind of, sh- and it's kind of for everyday um, activists too to understand how do you message, how do you not, how do you not always be conceding, which we kind of do often pivoting away from you know again that what that line shows there's a there was a lot of instinct last year when after Dobbs there was sort of some talk from some corners well don't get caught on abortion too much get back to the real issues right and Wesson's advice was when they are being extreme on something and they're in the minority run with it to its furthest extreme like that line don't walk away because for some voters they're going to show up for that reason. That reason. Exactly. And if you pivot back to like, well, you know, another issue because it's sort of your your fallback, you're blowing an opportunity. Run their position to its most extreme. And in this case, you're saying the absolute truth. There is yes. no rebuttal to that line except someone will try, oh, don't be so offensive. I'm, like, I'm not being offensive. That is your position. That is what your position allows. That's what... You know, if if that young girl hadn't have been to go go to Indiana, Ohio Republicans, that would have been her fate. Yes, uh, so absolutely. So I I I add the messaging part because I do think when when so much of it in these close races is about turnout, and one side 
literally makes up stuff like a caravan is coming every god damn day milk toast ads on like that don't get anyone excited but may pull well because the middle aren't offended by them they're gonna beat us by popping their turnout and we're not popping ours there you go we're gonna take another short break and when we come back we'll have more fascinating discussion i love it i could do it for hours (laughs) fascinating discussion with david pepper the author of saving democracy we'll be right back Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, JATQ Podcast. That's JATQ Podcast. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Question's newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Hi, we are back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Kerman. With me, as I said earlier, is uh, David Pepper, former Ohio Democratic Party chairman with a fascinating new book out called Saving Democracy. David, uh, before we go further, where can we find you? Where can we find the book? Where can we find you on Twitter? How do people connect with you? Thank you for asking. So I'm at David Pepper, just on Twitter. I try other venues. You know, I'm on Facebook and I have a YouTube channel. I think it's called David Pepper for Ohio. But most of the things that people respond to seem to be my Twitter my Twitter. Yeah, mine too. Thing. God bless you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, by the way, I'm also on um, Substack. I started a Substack recently, worrying that Twitter might implode. I bought. I started one. <laughs> so if you like what we're talking about, I send out a, a, about two or three times a week, both videos and newsletters about all this kind of stuff. And then if you want, I also, by the way, and this is where you can find the book, you can go to Amazon or barnesandnoble.com, obviously. But hoping that people will, will actually read the book not as a static thing but the book is a call to action at the end of the book i say here's all the things you can do and then let's talk about it i created a um a website called savedemocracy.us so it's savedemocracy.us and on that website literally i have some of the worksheets that you can download the footprints that it walk you through how you can like do something we talked about videos like so i'm you know again if no one reads the book the website is probably useless but my hope is like, and I don't, I, this is why I do these things. Like, like you, I'm fired up. I'm tired of watching us lose. So my hope is. I'm tired of the death threats. <laughs> right, exactly. So my hope is that these, that, that the book does inspire. And if you are inspired by the book or this conversation, this website, savedemocracy.us, it's my attempt to kind of keep that conversation going. And, and, and it literally says, if, if you want to run for office, here's how you do it. If you want to engage voters, as we've talked about, here are ways to do it. And I connect you to the organizations that, that can help you do these things at that website and in the book. So there's a there lot of ways to, to get to me. Now, the most important question of the day I have to ask, uh, I was going to, I didn't know you were from Cincinnati, but I had prepared these questions ahead of time, seeing that you were the former Ohio Democratic Party chairman. I was, was going to ask you Bengals or Browns, but I, I think oh, I know the answer to that yeah, one. No, I mean, <laughs> I... I Reds or Indians? <laughs> I figure no, I know that one. I, I'm I, an Ohio I've State. I've always been fan? a Reds fan. Oh, are you but an Ohio Bengals, State the, fan? The Bengals are my like true. I mean, I, I had my I have a nine year old and six year old. 
And last January, I'm road tripping to Buffalo for that playoff game where we beat Buffalo through a blizzard. I mean, so we are diehard Bengals fans. Yeah, Ohio um, State fan? Yeah. I mean, I like Ohio State. That's who I cheer for in college. But yeah. Bengals are like the team that, that you know. By the way, what's great about what's happened with the Bengals, not to annoy other football team fans on this thing, but <laughs> It really has become electric. Like my when I you know, so the Bengals for years, and you probably heard this. The people who didn't like them were called the Bungles. Like they yes. would call them the Bungles. Well, yeah, I'm the guy who always believed they would win. Like I, I again, I went to school in Connecticut. I used to have to, no bar would ever have a Bengals game in it. So I would literally go to off-track betting places because it was the only place I could find a free TV. To watch, to watch the Bengals the- lose by 40 against like and, and get to two and 14. So I've been literally with them all the way. And but but what's great about what's happening now is you know you can my, see them uh, on TV in a bar now. Oh, they're everywhere. <laughs> and everywhere you go, anywhere near Cincinnati, everyone's got the borough jersey. My wife, yeah. when we first started dating, would say uh, the bung- she would call the bungles. Now we have mugs of her <laughs> favorite players in our She'll send me a message. Oh, did you see we signed this free agent? Like my wife <laughs> only called the Buggles. So it really has, you know, it's it's been a lot of fun for Cincinnati. And really, because Joe Burrow is from Eastern Ohio and really the Appalachian side yeah. and what he talked about, it's kind of roped in a whole new fan base. And he's been really good for the franchise in Ohio. So it's been a really feel-good thing uh, for a team that – now you don't. You, I, I got to ask you. I'll interrupt to ask you this, but I notice when I talk about things Cincinnati, when I say Utapo beer, you don't really jump out for that. That's is that not a? It, I mean, it is funny when you grew up there. That's what you. That was what you heard. Yeah, he Fall City beer and Fall City beer in Louisville, Utapo beer in Cincinnati. Those regional exactly. beers are all gone. It's all Budweiser. Yeah, no, but Huey Delight and and I. I always. I. I don't know if the, if one of the sources of the Who Day chant was Hootie beer. Uh, I've never proven that, but I think it has to be related. But, well, um, a, a drunk Utapol fan, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, who day? Exactly. Who day? Give me a beer. Yeah. But no, it's it has been a fun run, and and um, it is it is interesting because it used to be that having one Monday Night Football game was a celebration if you were the Bengals, and now they're on you know all, all the, the time. time. And they Sorry. get they clearly get very good ratings too. They're a fun team to watch. Yeah. So here we'll switch gears again. Uh, uh, Stones or Beatles? Uh, I mean, I, I got, that's a tie. I got to, I, I listened. To <laughs> okay. Both. Uh, I did, uh, and by the way, I did go to the steel wheels concert. Oh yeah. In 1989 in Shea stadium. Uh, all right. Who are Led Zeppelin? The who are Led Zeppelin? The who? Yeah. I was at the, uh, I was at the concert in Cincinnati. Oh, where, my yeah. Gosh, yeah. Where the, where the people I, were I crushed. Up- Wow. I grew up in the neighborhood of Wyoming and Wyoming is a northern suburb, inner, inner suburb. And that was one of the places that lost a number of kids. Yeah. And those who don't know, you know, there was a there was a basically they didn't they had a really poor system. Three doors and a a number of young people died in a sort of a trampling tragedy. It was a huge deal for the city. I was, uh, I was, I mean, I was part of the throng and that's what ended festival seating. You know, uh, that was that particular concert. Nobody inside knew. I mean, I knew when we were going through that we were being shoved and pushed, 
but I didn't know that, you know, I think it was 11 people that were crushed to death uh, waiting to go into the yeah. Who concert. It was a great concert, by the way, but I no, mean, it was, yeah, but that was a real, that was a, that, that, that lived with the city for a long time. Yeah. Almond Brothers. When I was on city theater. council, they brought oh. back festival seating uh, years <laughs> later. And because basically a lot of bands won't even play without it. Um, yeah. And that's true. It, that's absolutely it brought true. up. It, but but Cincinnati, literally, the, the people who did music were saying people don't come. We're missing out on tons of acts because of this rule. But even then, it was a difficult thing to change because a lot of those families were still remembering, you know, oh, what what a trauma, what a morning. tragedy. Yeah, it, it, no, only awesome. opening three doors. I mean, you got yeah. I mean, that was the it was so much more than just special. It was the whole setup. And yeah, and uh, it was no, it was terrible. So, uh, okay, but yeah, it was terrible. Allman Brothers or Leonard Skinner? Leonard Skinner. Favorite song? Of um of Leonard Skinner. Yeah, I don't even I can't even I can't even think right now. <laughs> you need to give me choices. I know. I put you I put you in a different mindset yeah. than talking politics. But yeah. what I like to do is I, I by, like by the way, the, the older I get, I just can't I just don't remember anything. Like <laughs> I don't remember specifics. If you played me the songs, they'd be like, oh, yeah, here we go. But um, I was cutting a rug yeah. down at the jug with a girl named Linda Lou. <laughs> yeah. um, so, all right. So it, if you're going to take a weekend off and take the family somewhere, what, what would you do? Camping? Would you go? Uh, it's free. You can go anywhere you want. I have a great I have great stories on this. So in the last nine months, because I got caught up in the travel hell of december so our Ugh. we were going to actually go to florida our flight got canceled and because i had a positive covid test in march where a trip skiing got canceled my kids are in tears like oh my god our, our trip's canceled and then i'll say to them well let's call it houston woods state park which is near dayton and it saves the vacation <laughs> so with my current with the kids being there their age they you don't need a fancy trip anywhere like the state park that's an hour away yeah with some hiking trails and some creeks and a few free video not free but a few video games it's like they're great so right now they get off school this weekend what are we doing hey dad when are we going to houston wood state park so now actually now on the one of the bipartisan things i actually do in life i'm on the state parks foundation uh, of the state of Ohio. That's because cool. these state parks as a dad have been like my savior. And I told them, I wrote them an email. They actually put it out on Instagram, like Houston Woods State Park saved two of our vacations because it was it was the the one thing that that my kids who were pretty upset about not having a vacation could think about that actually made them forget that we canceled the other one. So I'm a big believer in, in Ohio, and I think other states the same thing, and just the value of these public serving parks that everyone can go to. And my work as a, on this foundation is to figure out how do you make them more accessible and frankly, family friendly. And I, so I'm always saying on the board, I'm like, guys, as a dad, let me tell you, if you added this little thing here and this little thing there, it would lead to hours of fun for a family that a dad like me is looking for and a parent, parents cool. like my wife. So that's very cool. That's been our great little uh, that. It, so it's not really camping out. It's in the little lodge, but it really is uh, a great, a great thing. And I, I, you know, my, my worry in life is, as we run down all public goods in these states, 
that these kinds of places end up, that's why I'm glad to be on this foundation. We're trying to help lift it up. These very important public institutions that get overlooked are, are slowly eroded. Um, yes, they are. And um, unfortunately, for, for my family right. and so many other families, like it's these are great little places to go. They're affordable. Like for some, it's the only lake they're going to get to. Yeah. So we've got to keep them going. I, I and I'd I'd stay away from. Well, when I first started going there, it was Coney Island, then it was Kings Island, and now it's Kings oh, yeah. Dominion. But I I I mean I got bored with those with the kids and they got bored with them we've we, when our kids were younger they would much rather go out and explore and do something that was you know un unplanned you didn't have to stand in freaking lines for 45 minutes oh, to yeah. get on a ride you would go out and actually explore and do your own thing and that was the coolest thing that my kids and we did as a family so i'm totally. always there's a that. there's a creek i was driving around the state park and there was a little indicator on the map of like a fossil. And I was like, let's go look at that fossil. What? And I didn't even know what it was. And it was a long creek bed where almost every rock is a fossil of some sort. We spent hours. Yeah. And I went back to the foundation. I said, you need to play this up. Like I would have never known that that was there. And I'm telling you of all the things in your entire state park, those fossils that you barely mentioned on the map were literally the most exciting. The coolest things to do. Yeah. Right. Kind and of a random thing that, that most adults would never realize unless you're running around with a six-year-old trying to keep them entertained, that that was the greatest creek bed of all time. It, it, it was it, the whole afternoon of fun. And uh, to tie it all back in before we take off, you know, the one thing I find when I talk to extremists or anyone, those things tie people together. Yes. Those things do a great, uh, they have a great ability to bring people together. And what, you know, I've talked to people who don't understand that when you're talking about where your taxes go and the importance of social programs and, you know, they call it socialism or communism. And it's, it's not, it's, it's, it, it doesn't have that bad connotation to it. Correct. That's one of the ways that the Democrats don't message bringing I, people together. I agree. With that. So one of the, one of the core parts of my messaging chapter we talked about is this exact point that we have to, if you run around and talk about corruption and democracy every day to most voters, they're tuning it out. They think everyone's corrupt. Yes. Democracy stuff is, you got to break it down. What is the impact of that corruption on everyday lives? And the impact is your public schools in that rural, that rural district, the only school that's in that district is collapsing. Or you're paying $1,000 a month for Johnny to play football because they can't afford the team without that help. Or that park you love so much, they haven't added a new bathroom in 20 years because they don't believe in public assets. They're, the things, or your small town is dying because you haven't invested in infrastructure in years. The, the outcomes in these gerrymandered and extreme state houses, because most of what these legislators are doing is giving public goods to private players, like the Brett Favre story. Think about yes. that everywhere in a bigger degree, the inevitable outcome in these states as they give away public goods is the public outcomes are declining. And if you're running for office in one of those states, identify the public outcome that is indefensibly poor, like four days of school a week. Any that Talk about a unifying issue as a parent of young kids. Friday, we got to figure out what little Johnny needs to do all day and we both work. That's literally impossible. And so right. I think we have to do a much better job of saying to all the voters, either they're conservative or they're not even that political, because of that corrupted state house, you don't have school on Fridays. And for your family, that's a disaster. 
or that park is decrepit, that Main Street is run down, connect the extremism. Your hospital is closing. Your school your is hospital's closing. closing. The your police don't have enough everybody. money. The the, the the fire department is inept and can't. Absolutely. Or, fires. or they defunded the police. So you have a smaller force, which in Ohio, the Republicans have been cutting local funding for years. That's gutted police departments. So connect the dots. Don't, don't go on and on about the corruption. Mention it. But make okay. sure people know that they're the ones paying the price on the issues that to them aren't about politics, but are about finding a thing to do for their kid on Fridays because the school wasn't open on Fridays. That's why you have a Democratic governor of Kansas. All she talked about was that Sam Brownback's insane cuts crushed Kansas schools, and she's governor because of it. Or Gretchen Whitmer, fix the damn roads. I can't drive down the street without ruining my windshield on a pothole. Connect the rundown to real issues that uh, people sitting around the kitchen table are talking about. There you go. And I think we don't really do that. Like we often like Washington DC eyes, our campaigns. What do I love about the Whitmer ad? And I point to this in my book. If, if she's running an ad on potholes and broken streets, that's a Michigan based ad. That's not going to confuse you with the DC Senate debate. And there's some good debates to be had there, but yeah. that is similar for Michigan saying, Fix the damn roads. And when she says it that way, the Michiganders are like, she gets it. Yeah. So that, that's like the, the other line that's emotional, but it's also localized about what the failure in these state governments is doing to your life. And there I think it's go. a really key connection point. On that thought, listen, David, it's been a fascinating conversation. Love to have you back because, man, this is right in my wheelhouse. I talk about awesome. this a lot. Uh, the name of the book is Saving Democracy. The author is David Pepper. You can find him. Uh, on uh, uh, Twitter at David Pepper, and he has a Substack. And his last chance to plug anything else. Uh, if, if buy the book, get uh, then sign up for the website. And let's stay in touch. There you go. The name of this show is Just Ask the Question. I am your host Brian Karam. Thanks for joining us once again. A fascinating conversation, David. Please join us again. We'll catch you guys next time.